We are back. 50 years ago today, the space age began. From a secret base in the Central Soviet Union, a rocket carrying a 184-pound steel sphere with a rudimentary radio transmitter lifted off. The space race had begun and humanity was changed forever. Matthew Brzezinski, former Moscow correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, has, has written a fascinating book about this event. The book is titled Red Moon Rising, Sputnik and the Hidden Rivalries that Ignited the Space Age. Mr. Brzezinski has reported extensively on homeland security issues for the New York Times Magazine and other publications. He's the author of Fortress America on the Front Lines of Homeland Security. Matthew Brzezinski, welcome to Radio Parallax. I was very impressed in reading your book about the completely new take you have in many aspects on how the space race got started. One of the first things that, that your listeners should, should know is that there was no such thing as a space race until, until Sputnik's streaked across the sky. Um, what Sputnik was was very much an offshoot, almost an accidental offshoot of the arms race. And um, the Soviet Union, essentially with Sputnik, it wanted to publicly unveil an ICBM. And that is the reason that Sputnik had such a profound effect on the United States. It caused this near hysteria. Uh, it wasn't so much that, you know, the, the, the satellite itself, this 22-inch uh, orb that was roughly the shape of, of a basketball, that, you know, wasn't the, the object, the thing that, that, that freaked people out so much in this country. It was the, it was the rocket um, that it rode on. This was uh, a 100-foot-long uh, um, missile that within 27 minutes could drop um, a hydrogen bomb from time of launch on any American city. And this was the first time in U.S. history that um, the American heartland was vulnerable, exposed to foreign attack. And this was the true significance of, of Sputnik and, and all the political changes that came from it. The space race was really a corollary that, you know, that, that, that took a bit, that after the humiliation um, and, and the, the, the international propaganda victories that the Soviet Union racked up with Sputnik 1 and Sputnik 2, and then we tried to respond, and our rocket blew up on the launch pad on live, on live TV. We were, we were essentially, as a nation, humiliated and sort of determined to, to even the score. And then the space race began. But initially, it had absolutely nothing to do with space or exploration or science. It was all about military muscle flexing. Yes, Mr. Brzezinski, I, I enjoy very much uh, Red Moon Rising, and I was uh, stunned to see that you actually spoke with um, Sergei Khrushchev, who described when the, when the Politburo, I guess that the Presidium at that time, went to go take a look at what was going on with Soviet rockets, uh, how their jaws dropped, and they saw what the chief designer had, uh, had come up with. Well, it was, it was, it's interesting, that, and this is something that, in, in a sense, a book like the one I've written could not have been, could not have been researched and published during the Cold War, and this is one of the things that's interesting, I found at least very interesting, is now we're really able to see the other side of the story. And that visit when, um, when Nikita Khrushchev and his son Sergei, who now today lives in the United States, and the rest of the Politburo, they go to the secret, uh, secret design bureaus of, of, of the main missile research center, you really see um, how afraid they were of the United States. At the time... We had this, we had the, the Eisenhower administration had this policy of basically official intimidation. We just got back bogged down in Korea, Indochina, Vietnam's former name was brewing up. We didn't want to get, we didn't want to get stuck in any more small wars. So to keep communism from spreading, we prepared for what we called total war. 
and our poli our doctrine was relied on a, on on a, on a platform of what we called massive retaliation, which effectively was to use our overwhelming air superiority. We had um, we had a numerical advantage of roughly 20 or 30 planes to 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 one if the Soviets and, and moreover our our long range bombers could reach the Soviet Union. Theirs could, would run out of gas over, uh, over the Atlantic and couldn't hit us back. And so what did we do? We launched an intimidation campaign where we would fly bombers in attack formation right into Soviet territory. Um, we would send U-2s, which were our, our, our spy planes, right over Red Square. Um, we would scramble the entire uh, fleet of long-range bombers and send a 1,000 bombers over the Atlantic charging towards Russia. We violated Soviet airspace 10,000 times, and they didn't violate it a single time. And, I mean, you could just imagine how America in the sort of post-McCarthy post era would have reacted if the Soviets had bombers flying over San Diego or, or New York. Uh, I mean, it, 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 we really would have probably declared war. And that is precisely what the Soviets thought, that we were, we were pining away for World War III. And they were so frightened of this that that is why they put, they put literally all their eggs in the, in, in the missile basket. They said the only way to protect ourselves from what, we, from what they saw was American aggression um, was was to build these intercontinental ballistic missiles, thus ratcheting up and elevating the arms race to a, to a far more lethal uh, lethal level. And it's interesting; it's it's really an unintended consequence of what was a well-intentioned policy of ours to keep communism in check by, you know, by threatening them a little bit and keeping them on their toes. But maybe we we went to what we didn't realize is we went too far, and that caused them to react. And uh, and the net result of this was uh, was Sputnik and ICBMs. I was quite astonished to read in your book, and I, and I did not know this, that when, when they were talking about launching a, uh, the R-5, I guess it was, in the Soviet Union, they went right ahead and did it and launched a missile with an active atomic warhead and blew the thing up. I did not know that. That's quite, quite eye-raising. Right. Well, this was, uh, the R-5 was the predecessor to the first intercontinental ballistic missile. It was a medium-range missile. And the thing about that is that... Um, the, Bombs in those days, atomic bombs in those days, had not yet been miniaturized, meaning that an atomic bomb or hydrogen bomb weighed between three to five tons. These were colossus. And one of the problems that we had in America is our rockets were too small. They just didn't have the horsepower to lift such a heavy load. Now, the Soviets liked doing things in a big way, brute force type thing. And so they were the first to, to successfully um, detonate a, a, a missile with, uh, with a warhead. And of course, the, the successor of the, the R5, which in, in, in some ways was 10 times more powerful than the R5, was the R7, that the same missile that put Sputnik into orbit, and then later Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, into orbit. And it turned out that it was, it, it, the irony is it turned out to be a wonderful space lift vehicle, but a terrible ballistic missile. <laughs> Just because it was too big and unwieldy, it took too long to fuel. As a weapon, it was a total disaster. As a political propaganda tool, it was it was probably the biggest success uh, of anything the Soviets ever produced. Well, in one fell swoop, in 1957, the Soviet Union basically went from being thought of as a backward nation to something seen on on with parity with the U.S. with this great technological breakthrough. Sure, and in many ways, a, a lot of a, a great many nations thought that uh, the Soviet Union was even ahead of us because they launched one. Then they launched a, with a month later they launched uh, they launched a dog into space. So this was no longer just this tiny little ball, but this was now a space capsule with a living being in it. Uh, unfortunately, the dog actually died on takeoff, but uh, but the public, of course, didn't know this, and the Soviet the Soviets played it for all for all the political um, uh, propaganda points they they could, and we respond 
with a very sort of hurried effort of our own, which we which we make a terrible mistake of. of they they would keep their launches secret, only announce them once they were successful. We announce that we're responding on on such and such a date at such and such an hour, and we invite the TV cameras. And humiliatingly, there's a huge fireball, and the entire world is laughing at us. And it, and at that point, many people are saying, you know what? Maybe socialism, maybe communism is more effective than capitalism and democracy and free markets for science and technology. And a great many countries, including some of our very nervous allies in NATO and Europe, started you know, getting jittery and saying, geez, maybe the Soviets really are technologically more advanced than America. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if I can just add, this is the reason that you know, if, if, if many of your listeners took loans out when they went to college, the reason we have federally backed loans in this country is Sputnik is the panic that they, their education programs, their science programs are so much better than ours um, that we needed to start pump, pumping a lot more money into education, and we created loan programs for, uh, for college to facilitate more people getting a higher education. And that, so, you know, if you went to college and, and, and got loans, you can, you, can thank, uh, you can thank the Russians for that. Well, back in the 1980s, when there was much talk about a window of opportunity, how we need to build up to, to equal the Russians, I, I took it upon myself to to try and sort through what the strategic balance was between the two nations. And I was stunned to realize that even in the 1980s, the Soviets did not have bombers capable of reaching the U.S. and flying back uh, back to the homeland. And in essence, in 1957-58, the ICBM had really rendered the Air Forces uh, sort of superfluous, and yet we still went ahead and built these gigantic fleets of bombers. Yeah, that's another thing that I found in doing the research for this book. I was amazed at the sort of the cronyism, corruption, and cynicism in Washington. And that probably comes comes. There's nothing new to a lot of our jaded uh, uh, to your jaded listeners. But um, it, you know, it, 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 there's a very interesting scene where, where shortly before Sputnik, we hold these air power hearings um, that were were chaired by Senator Stuart Symington. And um, in these, we have we present all this cooked up intelligence that says the Soviets are about to build uh, you know thousands of long range bombers and change the strategic balance of power. And we need we need you know emergency funding to build more bombers. Everybody knows this is a bunch of malarkey, including, including President Eisenhower, but he can't afford, he's just had a heart attack, he can't afford to seem like he's weak on defense because he's this war hero and the Republican platform is, we'll keep you safe from communism. So he goes along with the charade. You know, billions of dollars are put into, into building basically outmoded bombers, and then we need to cut, the, cut money from something, so they cut money from missiles. And this was, it was really an exercise, in, you know, and of course the money went straight to Boeing, which was building, which was building the planes. The Air Force was extremely uh, was extremely happy because it got a few extra wings. The net losers were really the American taxpayers um, who placed themselves and and in, in, in da- you know in greater danger from that in terms of national security. You raised some issues which really have not gone away as time has gone forward. There's some uncanny parallels, that, you know, between the current contemporary situation and Sputnik. Sputnik, in many ways, was the 9/11 of the 1950s in terms of the psychological and political impact, in terms of the, the sort of uh, fear-mongering, I would say, I, I, and the political exploitation of, of, of this crisis, which was, which was largely whipped up by politicians and, and us in the media. Then as now, there were certain interest groups in, uh, in, in Washington and were pushing an agenda that, that purposely sought to scare Americans into agreeing to all sorts of concessions and conditions. And, in those times, it was to free up more money to, to spend on the military and on, on intelligence. There was spy satellites developed out of this. They were, they were, in those days, there were politicians who exploited them. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, I mean, Lyndon Johnson 
really uh, the moment the moment that Sputnik two went up, he he reconvened Congress and held special hearings. It became known as the Sputnik Congress, and it was out of these hearings that NASA was created. Um, and these hearings were essentially a platform for him to try to win the nomination for the 1960 presidential uh, uh, ticket on, uh, for the Democrats. He very cynically exploited the missile gap um, for his own political purposes. And I think, you know, we've certainly seen since 9-11, there are certain politicians in, in, in Washington that have very much done the same thing. Certainly one of the most fascinating figures you talk about in the whole book, Sergei Korolev, uh, a man that was wanted to send up the artificial satellite. It's very amusing in that chapter you describe how uh, the Politburo, is, their guys are glazing over at this rocket that, to talk about a satellite that's not interesting to them at all. And he sort of puts it before them that, well, you know, the Americans are trying to do this too. And that finds the political hook that gets the, the political muscle behind him. This guy, who, who was only known as the chief designer, the Soviets never released his picture, never released his name, went after Sputnik, the Nobel Prize Committee, said, hey, look, we'd like to award the Nobel in physics to whoever it is that put this thing up. The Soviets wouldn't give them these names only after he died. Um, that they released his name, um, but he was a, he was a very shrewd guy. What he was playing off is 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 Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev's basically one inferiority complex towards the West and two competitive spirit. He, uh, Khrushchev was a very very interesting man. This is somebody who basically had what you know grade one or two um, elementary school education. He could barely read. Um, he, his, uh, he he could barely write. And yet he was fascinated with science and engineering. And I, all these things that, that, that Sergei Korolev is the chief, the chief missile designer, he sort of exploited all these things and played off them. Say, hey, look, you know, the Americans, you know, the Americans are going to be first, and we have a chance here of being first and, you know, making Eisenhower look bad. And in the Soviet days, basically, you know, it was like a Tsarist kingdom, where if the, if, if the head of the Politburo, the first party secretary said, yes, that's all you needed. Um, if he personally didn't sign off on it, then, then any project would just languish. And so it was, it was playing on, playing on uh, Khrushchev's ego, essentially, that he got him to agree to this thing. Because the Soviets, well, what is this satellite? What's this got to do with missiles? For them, the priority was always national defense, national defense, not, not space exploration. And, he, and, and the way he did it, he said, look, it's no big deal. All we're doing is sw swapping a, a warhead. It won't delay the program. And Khrushchev kind of thought about it. He said, okay, you know, if it doesn't delay anything, and as he put it, I think the direct quote was, if the main task doesn't suffer, you know, go ahead and do it. And, you know, and, and I guess he got what he wanted because the Americans certainly were humiliated by Sputnik. And yet, uh, to hear it told, uh, it seems as though the Americans certainly could have, with Werner von Braun in, in American custody and in a lot of the equipment that you, you, you detail how uh, we got there first and got a lot of the V-2s out of what was going to be Soviet-occupied territory in Germany, we had every opportunity to win that race to get a satellite up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to remember that Hitler did bet the Reich on, on missiles, on the v, what was known as the V-2 back then. The, the Nazis, the Germans, were decades ahead of anybody else in terms of rocketry. And there were, the race really, if you, if you talk about, you know, the, the, the sort of the so-called space race, it really began in the waning days of World War II, where you have both these armies converging from, from either side on Berlin, and you have special agents on either side hunting for all this technology, going into factories and hunting down scientists, and they've buried these parts of a missile and we won that race. We got all. We got Werner von Braun, who who later became quite famous because of Walt Disney, and eventually he's the man who put us on the moon. He's also a man who was an SS major and a, a Nazi party member, which was inconvenient and, and kind of buried at the time. Um, the only problem is we just didn't have the political will. We got these guys in America. We got all these rockets, and we basically left them to languish because we were putting all our money into bombers. It's interesting that Vice President Nixon 
who did not have a lot of authority in the Eisenhower administration, kept telling, kept telling Ike, look, we've got to be doing more with these missiles. We've got to be doing more with these missiles. And, and, um, and it's very interesting that if you look at the minutes of all these old meetings, he's overridden every time. And every single warning and prophecy that he made came to pass. And, and, it's, and during this period, Nixon was, with, it, I know history treats him very differently later on, but he was an excellent vice president. The book is Red Moon Rising, Sputnik, and the Hidden Rivalries that Ignited the Space Age. We've been speaking with author Matthew Brzezinski about this. It is one of the best books I've read in a very long time. I can't recommend it highly enough to everyone listening. And I hope, Mr. Brzezinski, you can come back and talk a little bit more about this uh, perhaps in the next couple of weeks. Sure, I'd love to. Because there's a lot more to say about a, lo- a lot of these aspects of this, this fascinating story. It'd be my pleasure anytime. I'm Douglas Everett, and you're listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned for our hair-raising tale of, uh, of what can go wrong when you're piloting an aircraft. That will be with our aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zarevika. Stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm.